Welcome to the Catholic Youth Podcast, a podcast that will encourage and inspire you in engaging with young people in Catholic youth ministry. I'm Juliana, and in today's episode, number 12, A Guide to the Voice to Parliament, I'm teaming up with James Meston from the ArchD Radio Show to sit down with a very special guest, Father Frank Brennan. Father Frank is a Jesuit priest, lawyer, and academic who has been a longtime advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people rights. He's an officer of the Order of Australia for services to Aboriginal Australians, particularly as an advocate in the areas of law, social justice and reconciliation. The National Trust has classified him as a living national treasure, and in 2009, he chaired the Australian National Human Rights Consultation Committee. Father Frank sits down with us to talk about the upcoming referendum on the voice to parliament, sharing plenty of wisdom, insights and stories along the way. We'd also love to acknowledge this podcast was recorded on Ghana Yata, and as part of our ongoing commitment, we'll engage in constructing a meaningful and authentic acknowledgement of country with our First Nations people at the centre, to listen and learn from their wisdom, stories and experiences, and to journey together. Feel free to follow us on this journey. So, let's jump right into our conversation with Father Frank. Okay, so Father Frank, interesting left field question to begin with. If a film was to be made about your work with Indigenous people in Australia over the years, their rights and their representation, what would be the opening scene of the film? The opening scene would actually be a very sad scene because my real introduction was back in 1981 as a young barrister. And I was. And how old would you have been at that time? Oh, I would have been, I don't know, late 20s. Okay. And I was briefed to appear for a young Aboriginal man who was charged with killing his lady friend Mm. on a remote Aboriginal community in far north Queensland. And we found the homicide rate was the highest recorded amongst any ghetto group in the Western world. Wow. And Did that surprise you when you heard that? Not only surprised me, it devastated me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had to go up to Weeper up in Cape York, and it was the first time I visited very remote Aboriginal communities, and I experienced what it was for people to live on those reserves in those days as they were known, yeah. and to see how trapped they were in their existence. Yeah. And uh, so that was pretty daunting. In fact... I remember after the case, I was pretty pleased. I was being led by the leading criminal lawyer in Queensland and we had what was regarded as a good win. Mm. The young man, he basically walked free after the case and I turned up in Canberra at the Institute of Aboriginal Studies and a librarian, not Aboriginal, but a non-Aboriginal librarian, but a very fine woman and scholar, she said to me, so you were in that case? And I very proudly said, yes, we had a good win. She said, yes, you took away the one remaining protection there was for Aboriginal women in situations of great despair and isolation. Wow. And that comment has stayed with me for 40 All years. these years. And how has that comment then informed what you've done from there? Was that really a defining moment for you? Well, it was a defining moment for me in terms of if you're really talking about justice and you're looking at the history of dispossession and colonisation and the trauma of all of that, that it lasts generation to generation. And so 
it made me realise that we had a lot of work to do as a society in order to try and put right the wrongs of the past so that we might all move forward together. The young woman who died, her name was Deirdre Gilbert, so I've often said that what we've got to ensure is that life is better for the Deirdre Gilberts of this world. The young man who was charged, his name was Owen Peter, and I say we've also got to make life more meaningful for the Owen Peters of this world so that we don't have a repetition of that sort of activity. Yeah, yeah wow. So it really sounds like young people have been really important in your journey um, with Indigenous peoples. Oh, sure. Well, I remember the year after that, was 1982, and I was appointed as advisor to the Queensland Catholic Bishops because Queensland was going to host the Commonwealth Games that mm-hmm. year. And we had a very colourful premier in Queensland in those days. His name was <laughs> I Sir Jovial Kibitis. I grew up in Queensland at that time oh, right. as well. So, yeah. yes, I do recall that. And so the church leaders, they were having some trouble with Bjorkipedison. And so they invited me to come as their advisor. And I travelled around the remote Aboriginal communities for a year. And I remember a very historic meeting we held with the young Aboriginal leaders of the remote communities We brought them all together at Palm Island off the coast of Queensland, off the coast of Townsville, and they held a big meeting and we employed a stenographer and we took minutes of what they had to say. And then there were the ABC journalists, uh, Maxine McHugh and Jane Singleton. And Maxine McHugh flew over to Palm Island and interviewed these young Aboriginal leaders. They were only in their 20s. And for the first time ever... These Aboriginal leaders went live to air on national television and said what they wanted. So I've often thought, we talk about a voice, uh, if there'd been a voice in place in those days for Aboriginal people, particularly those young leaders, we might have got much further, much more quickly. So speaking of the voice, as you've just said, so the voice to parliament is now a really, it's it's now... big part of the Australian public consciousness. It's a big thing moving forward. We're talking about a referendum. It's the first referendum we've had in this country for 20 odd years, probably. It's a really massive event and a huge issue for us to make sure we get this thing right. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about for you where your journey with The Voice actually began? Because you've been heavily involved in this. I have. um, Well, I suppose it goes back 1991, That far. Which might seem ancient history to your (laughs) listeners, but I wrote a book that year called Sharing the Country, where I'd sat down and I asked myself, what would it mean to share the country? And what helped inform me on that was that 1988 had been our bicentenary year, as it was called, and there was the opening of the new Parliament House in Canberra, and Queen Elizabeth came for that. And there were a lot of Aboriginal people who came and they were protesting for land rights. What your young listeners have to remember, this is before the Mabo decision in 1992. So there hadn't been the recognition of native title as we now have. And during 1988, there was a very distinguished elderly Aboriginal leader from Alice Springs, Wenton Rabunja. And he said, we have to work out a way of sharing this country. And I thought that was a great image, sharing the country. So I wrote about that in 1991. And then in basically through the 1990s, Loacher O'Donoghue, who now lives in Adelaide here, of course, she and I were great mates, and she was the head of ATSIC. And when Paul Keating was the Prime Minister, 
He appointed a young Malcolm Turnbull to advise on setting up a republic. And Lowitcher O'Donoghue was a member of that committee. And Lowitcher said that there should be something put in the constitution to recognise her people. Mm. And she proposed what we call a preamble. And so ever since then, the issue has been on the boil. And what happened was that if you go forward to 2007, John Howard was the Prime Minister. He'd been the Prime Minister for a long time. He had his back to the wall. Kevin Rudd was coming through on the rails. And so Howard said if he were re-elected that he would do something about putting the preamble in the Constitution. Well, he wasn't re-elected and Rudd got elected. Rudd decided instead to do something about the apology to the stolen generations. And he said that in his next term, he would do something about recognition. Mm -hmm. Well, Julia Gillard came along, so he didn't have a next term, did he? But then Julia Gillard set up an expert panel to look at it in 2012. So that's when it really started to take off. And so I followed very closely each step of the way being attentive to what the Indigenous leaders were saying. And it was in 2014 that the respected Aboriginal leader, Noel Pearson, came up with the idea of the voice. But then by 2015, Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister and he said no. And then Turnbull became the Prime Minister and he said no. And then Morrison became the Prime Minister and he said no. So then we came to the election of Albanese last year and it was put back on the agenda and we're still trying to work out how to get to yes. It's so frustrating this all just becomes part of a four-year political agenda. You know what I mean? Or a three-year political agenda, I should say. So, Yeah, it's um, almost like a, a soap opera, right, to, to actually hear it's been stretched out over all these years and all sure. the twists and turns along the way. Mm. Um, I think most of the public don't know that in general, to know it's really been ruminating for a long time. Mm. Um, has there been a moment along this journey that's really stood out to you or impacted you so far? I think there have been a number of moments, but obviously Albanese appearing at the Gama Festival so soon after his election and committing to a formula of words, I think that was a very big moment. It was obviously a very big moment when Albanese stood at that press club, uh, that press conference a few weeks ago with all the key Aboriginal leaders around him. It was very emotional indeed. Uh, There have been key moments like with Noel Pearson being very emotional a few times. Mm. And, of course, other key moments have been when the National Party came out and said, well, we don't care what you say, we'll just be voting no. And then to have the Liberal Party, led by Peter Dutton, coming out and saying we'll be voting no, uh, there have been a lot of ups and downs on this roller coaster ride. Could I ask, like, when they say we're going to come out and say no, what justification do they give to no? Like, in their mind or in whatever it is they're putting forward, why no? And who are they representing by saying no? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I know that might sound like a little bit of a a dumb question, but I think it's Mm. it's a question that in conversations I've been having with people this week, knowing there's a whole bunch of things that I really want to talk to you about about all Mm. this, but- a lot of people this week have been saying they really just don't understand yeah. like both what it will mean in in the everyday life of Australians if this all does this referendum uh, referendum is successful but also why are people actually opposing this like what's their justification sure. for it well I think we've all got to try and be respectful of those of differing views yes. and of get an understanding of you know why someone might say no 
I pick up a few different strands. One is, if you like, at a very elevated philosophical level, people Mm. just saying, well, look, I believe everyone should be equal, Mm. which means treating everyone the same, or there shouldn't be special mention of any particular racial group or ethnic Mm. group in our constitution. Mm. Now, that's a defensible argument. Mm. It overlooks the fact that we have a provision in our constitution that says that the parliament has power to make special laws with respect to people of particular races for whom it's deemed necessary to make special laws. And that only applies to Aboriginal people nowadays. Mm. And so I say to those people, well, if you're going to have that sort of provision in the Constitution, surely at least there should be a guarantee that they're consulted. Sure. So that's one level of no. But another level of no is people saying, and you think, for example, of Aboriginal leaders like Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine. I mean, they're people who care passionately about their people, but they say, we just don't think it's going to make any difference. And in fact, we think that a voice in Canberra is a long way away from the needs of our people in local communities. And we think it's something of a distraction. So that's another argument for no. Another is that a lot of people say, well, we've seen bodies like this in the past. There was ATSIC, as it was called, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. It fell over after 10 years. There was then the Congress of Australia's First Peoples, and it fell over after 10 years. So how are we going to be guaranteed that this will be something that will really work? So they're the sorts of arguments you hear for no. And often it's people saying, well, look, we don't think anything really works in terms of relieving the situation of Indigenous people, so there's nothing really worth trying in the Constitution. And I think we've got to question that. Mm. So then your answer to that would be what? Because you're clearly someone who is... Um, speaking on behalf of of saying yes, we really do need this voice. Sure. So so clearly, there's a there's a clear counter argument to there those is. points that you just raised. Well, the first step is to say if you were to have a constitution for a nation like Australia, where Aboriginal people have inherited and lived on these lands for 60,000 years, and so those who claim an Aboriginal heritage quite rightly say, we are the custodians of that heritage. Now, shouldn't there be some recognition of them in your constitution? And I think most Australians say yes to that. So then the next part of it is to say, well, what form would that recognition take? Well, there's no point in having recognition other than a form that Aboriginal people themselves are asking for. Mm. Now, there's no doubt that prior to the gathering at Uluru in May 2017, people had all sorts of different views about what that representation might be. But when Aboriginal people gathered from all around Australia at Uluru, they came out and said, well, we think the appropriate form of recognition of us is through a voice being put in the constitution, to which I say, well, if that's what they say from Uluru, there really is no option but Mm. to try and work for that. And now you might have disagreements as to how far it should go in the constitution, but that's the process we're now working through at the moment. Okay. Yeah. So to to really break that down, it's saying that um, if – the constitution says that we have rights to make laws about Aboriginal people. We should consult them first. Is that yes. so? If we have a successful yes vote in this referendum, how will that change our lives? What will be different? Hmm. What key Aboriginal leaders say to us is that we know we'll be assured a place at the table. Mm. 
And it's not that uh, we're not aware of the problems that our communities face. In fact, we think we're quite expert in knowing those problems and in having ideas as to how those problems mm -hmm. might be solved. So why wouldn't you want a situation in terms of the governance of the country that we're given a guaranteed place at the table? Yeah. And I'm one who says, well, that sounds fair enough to me. Why not? Yeah. So looking at what could be a, a fuller Australia. Yes. Shared equally. Well, as Noel Pearson said the other day, I was there at the parliamentary committee. We were both giving evidence that day, as were some other colourful yeah. characters like Tony <laughs> Abbott. Uh, but Noel Pearson was saying that he thinks this will help to complete the Constitution. It yeah. will be an adornment yeah. to the Constitution. Sure. And I would just like to have a little chat as um, we speak a lot about youth and the younger generations on this podcast. As a young person myself, you know, being under 40, we've never had to vote in a referendum, right? And um, you, you touched on native title before. So that along with, you know, Racial Discrimination Act and other things we, we take for granted. And um, we know, you know, current life for young people, there's a lot of distractions, a lot of things we're thinking about, you know, rising cost of living, you know, climate change and things um, that these issues can pop up and it can be a bit overwhelming. Could you comment a bit about what's the real importance of this referendum, the gravity of this for young people so that we can really sort of understand it, have these conversations and take charge and participate? My own sense as I work around the country, and I've been giving a lot of talks all over the country, is that young people, when they do engage on this, they get it. Yeah. Uh, they say, well, you know, we as young people, yep, we'd like to be consulted if older yeah. people are going to make decisions <laughs> about it. <laughs> For so, sure. you know, it's, it's the vibe of it, I yeah. think, is very strong with young people. And the other thing is, yes, as you say, they've never voted in a referendum. Mm. Uh, in a sense, that gives them a bit more optimism mm. because older, more hardened Australians like me are aware that we've had 44 referendums since Australia federated. Has it been that many? Yeah. And only eight have succeeded. Yeah, and, uh, low, yeah. And the big lesson is that the Labor Party has tried to amend the Constitution 25 times. Goodness. Can you guess how many times they've succeeded? Well, uh, less none. than eight. <laughs> Once. Once. And what was that for? Well, that was back in 1946, so you have to be over 97 years of age to have voted in the one successful Labor Party referendum. And it was about things like child endowment and maternity allowances. Oh. That is extending the welfare net to everybody. And that's why I say this is a very different sort of referendum. Yeah. This is not about saying we're treating everyone exactly the same mm. or mm. we're extending the welfare net to absolutely everybody. This is about saying we do recognise that Aboriginal people have a special entitlement yeah. because they are the custodians of the heritage and because they still have not closed the gap yeah. and so that there are things that needed to be done so that they can have an equal place at the table. Yeah. It's so fascinating that if you probably asked every, like an everyday, I say everyday Australian, inverted commas, but a majority of Australians said, name one thing that is in the Australian constitution they probably wouldn't even be able to tell you. They'd probably say uh, the right to vote or something. Like that would be the, the, probably the, the queen. Thing that, so <laughs> okay. it's almost like going, why does this even need sure. to have to be, you know, like something that people have said to me this week is they're going, why are we even voting on this? This mm -hmm. just seems like something that should exist already. Mm -hmm. um, does something like this really require constitutional change? Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, in terms of knowledge of the Constitution, I often say to audiences, hand up those who have read the Australian Constitution, and hardly anyone has, Mm. because even as a lawyer I can say it's a very dull and boring document. (laughs) Then you ask, well, hands up anyone who knows anything about the American Constitution. Everyone knows something about the American Constitution. And maybe not just so much the Constitution. Yeah, the bits that were amended. (laughs) You see it on the movies all the time. That's right, yeah. Now, why put something in the Constitution... Some of the no advocates have been saying for a long time, well, if you want a voice, legislate it. Mm. For example, South Australia, you're legislating a voice. And everyone says it's a good thing. Mm. They're saying, let's legislate it, let's get on with it, and let's make sure it works. And if it needs to be given a bit of tweaking, we can do that in the parliament along the way. But it's Aboriginal Australia who have said to us, no, For a long time we've been talking about constitutional recognition Mm. and we're saying to you the only way we can be appropriately recognised in the Australian constitution is by constitutionalising. I know, but I don't, I I guess what I'm saying is I don't, like you just talking about legislating, why does constitutional change need to be the the more appropriate way? Well, that takes us back to the Uluru Statement issued in May 2017, Within two weeks, I was here in Adelaide where Lower Chura Donoghue had paid me the great honour of giving the Lower Chura ration for the 50th anniversary of the 1967 referendum. Mm. And I said, why not legislate it first, get it working, and then we can look at putting it in the constitution down the track. Some Aboriginal leaders were very upset at that. They said, no, if you legislate it first, we'll never get it into the constitution. Right. Okay. So they made the deliberate political decision. They yeah. said, no. Don't legislate at first because that's like pricking the balloon. Mm. We need to maintain the pressure so that we can get it into the Constitution. So that's their call. So in putting it in the Constitution, it essentially ironclads it as something that's going to make it easy to legislate for? That's that's what they say. Okay. Politically, the Aboriginal leaders have said to us, look, if it is in the Constitution, then there will be much stronger imperative Mm. for governments of whichever political persuasion to make sure that it's there, make sure it's properly resourced and make sure that we are respectfully listened to. Yeah, and you did a, a wonderful article that I that I read during the week in uh, Catholic Weekly, and I think you know, and I think you alluded to this before. You're, you're talking about the Constitution, so you're talking about very dry material. Sure. So what you've done is you've broken it down into like a ten point things of things to remember. And the one that really struck me as I started reading through it was your second point, which was. Don't expect all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to agree about legal, political and constitutional questions. It's called living in a democracy. And I think quite often we do, especially now in the era of identity politics and tribalism, we think about groups as homogenised groups going, this group believes Mm. X, this group believes Y, people on the left think this, people on the right all people on the right think that climate change isn't real. You know, there's all of these big generalizations that are made. And I think we all do fall into a trap every now and again of really believing, of going, well, if if Aboriginal people and Indigenous people can't agree, then we just have to wait for them to agree so that we can actually come up with something or else people are going to be pushing their own agendas, people are going to be pushing their own ideas. But that's what we do in a d- democratic society every day as individuals. That's right. And... Uh I remember this very vividly when I was a young Jesuit novice and I was sent for a couple of months to Redfern in Mm. inner Sydney Sydney. to work with a very legendary priest, Father Ted Kennedy. 
and I was with a fellow novice and we were sweeping out the church hall one day and my fellow novice said to this very respected Aboriginal elder, why can't you Aboriginal people just agree and then you might be able to get somewhere? Well, was there an eruption that couldn't quite be, <laughs> couldn't quite be cleaned up with the broom, I tell you. Oh, I bet. But he read us a lesson in humanity. He said, look, you white fellows don't agree. In fact, in Parliament, yeah. it's always... Fifty-one forty-nine. <laughs> Why would you expect us to agree, yeah. particularly after everything that we've been through? And uh, there's also and that so, that history that we have of about two thousand years of wars <laughs> that show that we really can't agree on much. And I might give an example. <laughs> I gave this example in the parliamentary committee this week. Uh, I used to chair Catholic Social Services Australia when they first brought in the experiment of the cashless debit card. Mm. And as I say, I had a sort of trendy lefty Canberra view of the cashless debit card. I thought it was a terrible thing. But I went to Sejuna mm. here in South Australia where there was a test site for the cashless debit card. Well, guess what? Most of our staff were Aboriginal. Yeah. Now, the majority of them favoured the cashless debit card. Not all of them, but the majority. And then most of our clients were Aboriginal and the majority of them favoured it. Why? Because they said, if we've got this cashless debit card, we can't be so readily humbugged by relatives who are on the grog or whatever and who are demanding the money. Now, it's being attentive to those voices Mm. that's important and it's one reason why I think having a constitutional voice will be a good thing because often in dealing with these very intractable problems, Mm. you need to make compromises and you need to own them and you need to work together. So how better to do that than to have an Indigenous voice that works through what their position is going to be Mm. and then they have to own it with government and try and make things improve. And this is the point, the very first point that you made in that article, in the Catholic Weekly article, is number one, be attentive to the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Stop telling them what's good for them. And uh, again, I mean, we're talking about the, uh, I guess, the current culture of the society we live in where we're very quick to jump in and comment on articles and really give our point of view rather than kind of what we reckon and what we feel rather than what we know, what we investigate, and most importantly, what we listen to other people say and be open and allow us, allow our minds to be changed. Yeah, that one actually really stood out to me about being attentive to voices and knowing Aboriginal history. And from the perspective of the young person, that can sometimes be a bit tricky because it's not necessary that we'll have Aboriginal people in our lives, right? Mm. Um, So that's sort of a gap that I see as well that a a lot of Australians and and younger Australians are either migrants or children or grandchildren of migrants. So that's a further jump. You're migrating to a country, you're learning sort of the general Australian metropolitan culture, let alone um, the, the culture of, you know, remote Australians or Indigenous. Australians. Um, so do you have any tips about how we can actually connect in with those voices and, and learn history? Because it is that sort of big jump for a lot of us that might not have those opportunities in our lives. Well, there's no substitute for having Aboriginal friends. Yeah. So yeah. that's step one. Yes. And uh, if you're not living near Aboriginal people, then take whatever opportunity you yeah. can in order to have social relationships with yeah. people who are Aboriginal. If you can't do that, then in the media, social media, whatever, to be respectfully attentive to the Aboriginal voices that you're hearing. Try and put yourself in their shoes. I remember many years ago, back in the 1980s, I was up in far north Queensland. I was meeting with an Aboriginal group 
They were trying to get land title and funding for building basic housing. And we walked out of the meeting, and the Aboriginal woman who convened the meeting, she pointed across the river and she said, see that house over there? That's Mr Armitage's weekender. Mr Armitage was the chairman of the Victorian Racing Club. Mm-hmm. She said they don't come very often, but when they come, they come in their helicopter. Wow. And they have a helipad there on the roof, which, as I say, was a new word for the traditional owners of that time. <laughs> and she told me this story not in a judgmental way, not angry yeah. or whatever, and it was a story I used to often tell to young people in schools. And often in better-off schools students would say to me, well, what's wrong with Mr Armitage having a weekender? And if he weren't paying his taxes, we wouldn't be able to pay the Aboriginal welfare bills and things yeah. like that. And one day I was really stumped by all this. I could see that my flash Jesuit legal answers weren't <laughs> satisfying the young students. So in reply, I said, look, I can't answer your questions, but I have only one question for you in reply. Which side of the river are you standing on as you ask your questions? Mm. Oh, that's good. And there's no doubt which side of the river they're standing on. And can you see that there are just as many questions if you move to the other side of the river? But they're very different questions, very different questions. And if you're into the Christian message, well, which side of the river would Jesus stand on? I once used that story at a diocesan pastoral council somewhere in Australia and a woman got up quite upset with me and she said she thought that Jesus stood in the middle of the river. Yeah, and on I the said, water. Well, no, I think, he preferred, <laughs> I think he preferred terra firma uh, and, yeah. and I think he had a preference yeah. and it was having that preference that he was able to shape his perspective on the world. Yeah. And so we've got to be able to do that ourselves and that's another part of, you know, Closing the gap. That's such a beautiful mm. analogy. I really like that. Yeah, and we'll make sure to link to some um, social media sources and other websites where people can um, access and, yeah, hear more about mm. the Indigenous voice. It sounds like you're still really fired up and inspired about all of the work you do, which is wonderful. And it's, yeah. you know, it's inspirational to get a chance to meet you and to mm. hear you speak. I'd be curious, though, that if you now with with all of the experiences you've had and all the knowledge that you've that you've attained if you did need to go back and and speak to that young Jesuit lawyer who was first getting started down this road to give yourself like a a one single piece of advice or affirmation or just one thing to go you know what here's something you're really going to need to have in your back pocket moving forward Mm -hmm. over the next few years what what gem of knowledge do you think you might impart I don't know. I think it would just be that you need resilience and hope mm. and you've got to feed that resilience and hope. Mm. And you can only do it if you have befriended Aboriginal people and if you have seen the good news that comes out of rising Phoenix-like out of the suffering that's been yeah. there. Wow. Father Frank, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. You're here to to speak to uh, uh, the congregations of the people of Adelaide. You've you've just come over to to do that. I think that's all you've come over to do, isn't it? Just to have this conversation, just to really let them know about your work and the voice and the things that that people need to be aware of and stuff like that. So 
a huge thanks from us and from the Archdiocese of Adelaide for coming over and, and spending the time to, to do that with us. We're really Thank blessed. Thank you, and great to be with you. And if your listeners are interested, I've got a book that came out with Garrett mm. Publishing, which is an Indigenous voice to Parliament, considering a constitutional bridge. Lovely. So that might be a useful resource for you. Fabulous. We do have a copy of that, and we also have Chris, our Catholic Resource um, Centre, that people can get in contact to borrow one if they don't have one in their hands. So we'll make sure to link to that so people can access that great resource as well as that article we mentioned about the 10 points um so thank you so much for the frank thank you for let's the hope we can get to yes in october absolutely here's to that let's go thanks thank you for listening to the catholic youth podcast make sure to connect with us on facebook and instagram at Catholic youth adelaide to stay up to date with all the latest information resources and events Until next time, see you.